0: Hi guys, welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderates, centrists, and independents. I'm your host, Hillary Lombard, and today I want to talk about Ukraine. No catchy theme song, no fun media clips. I'm just going to talk to you guys about what's going on, how the U.S. and other countries are responding, um, and just talk with you guys about what's on my mind and my heart. I also want to give a little bit of a disclaimer that I am not a military expert. I'm not a foreign policy expert. I do a lot of explainers for you guys where I try to convey a lot of really dense information in a way that you can engage with and appreciate, but today, um, well, today I just want to talk. I've received a lot of listener emails and submissions on this topic, but it's probably the most that I've received on any topic. I can tell that this is on your mind the same way that it's on mine, um, and I'm humbled that the show is something that you would turn to in moments like this. If you listen to this episode and you want to ask a question or tell me your thoughts on Ukraine or anything else, you can always email me at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. I don't always answer every question on the air, but I do answer every question. All right, let's get started. So on Thursday, February 24th, Russian President Vladimir Putin made the decision to invade Ukraine. A senior defense official told CNN that Russia's invasion of its neighbor in Ukraine was the largest conventional military attack that's been seen since World War II. Early estimates projected that Ukraine would be quickly and brutally overwhelmed. Experts anticipated that Kyiv, the capital city, would only last 24 to 48 hours. It's the ninth day of the Russian war against Ukraine. Kyiv is still standing today. That is largely due to the courage and defiance of the people of Ukraine and their leader, President Zelensky. His name may be familiar to you because he was one of the central figures in former President Donald Trump's first impeachment trial. Former President Trump withheld military aid from Ukraine in an effort to pressure them into investigating Hunter Biden. Zelensky didn't cave then and he's not caving now, but now the stakes are a lot higher. Two days into Russia's invasion, he told world leaders that he was target number one and that his family was target number two. But he stayed in Ukraine anyway, in Kyiv. The United States offered to evacuate him, and he told us he doesn't need a ride, he needs ammunition. He showed us that the only thing equal to Putin's menacing ambition was the bravery of the people of Ukraine. But the influence of his courage is not limited to the borders of Ukraine. His defiance in the face of the world's most dangerous man has galvanized the West. They had no choice. We all stood shamed by his courage. On the sixth day of the invasion, Zelensky delivered a speech to the European Parliament. He said, do prove that you are with us. Do prove that you will not let us go. Do prove that you indeed are Europeans and that life will win over death and light will win over darkness. He used to be a comedian. I think about that a lot. I I don't know why. It just um, it really sticks with me. I'm not sure how it's been for you, but the situation in Ukraine has been really heavy on my heart and on my mind. I think it's difficult to look away because while it says so much about Ukraine and the Ukrainian people, it also says a lot about us, about the West, about America. I think that we've given up on ourselves a lot. (laughs) Um, We've given up on the idea that we can be a powerful force of good, that we are called to be the counterbalance to evil in the world. Cynicism has spread like a cancer through Western countries. And there are legitimate reasons to be cynical. Vietnam, war in the Middle East, Brexit, COVID, racial injustice, mistakes at home, mistakes abroad. In the United States, we've given up on the good guy, at least politically. We have so many politicians that are telling us that they are the good guy and then they fall short or worse, they reveal themselves to be the bad guy. Our trust has been broken so many times that to some, Donald Trump felt like relief He was a fat cat Wall Street billionaire that wasn't afraid to lie, steal, or cheat to get ahead, but at least he was upfront about it. Donald Trump basically ran by saying, I'm a bad guy, but I'm your bad guy. And there was an honesty to that that people actually responded to. He bragged about harassing women. He was proud of his xenophobic policies, separating families at the U.S. southern border. And he was corrupt. I mean, he was proudly corrupt. You think that Americans that think things are going well elect a guy like that because I don't. It's not just Trump. Look at the shows that we watch. Secession, The Wire, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones. We sure do love an anti-hero or rooting for the bad guy. I think the common thought process around that is that no one is good or bad. That everything and everyone is a mix of both. And then we pat ourselves on the back for being smart enough to know that heroes and villains are the things that you find in comic books and kids' movies yay for moral relativism and you know it's true to some degree of course it's true people are flawed people are complicated bad people donate to charity serial killers fall in love sometimes good men have cheated on their wives but not everything is that complicated hitler bad i don't care if he was a good painter or if he was nice to his fellow nazis he was bad killing civilians bad committing war crimes bad authoritarians bad and bad must be beaten back by good or it will consume us. I think that we used to understand that. We used to believe that it was our responsibility as a superpower to stand up to bullies, to punch back and to make them pick on somebody their own size. But you have to believe in yourself to do that, right? America's always been defined by our relentless optimism and our fundamental belief in ourselves. Like we have high self-esteem, guys. At least we used to. When we were founded around ideas, self-governance, democracy, freedom, Cynics said that we weren't special, that we were just like any other country, but we didn't buy it. The United States stood apart from the world because we believed that we were different. We believed that we were different, so we were. We believed that there was no limit to what we could do, and think about how crazy that is, to think that in a world dominated by kings and queens, you, a farmer, a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, (laughs) a lot of lawyers, that you could start your own country and stand shoulder to shoulder with any king. That was crazy at the time. It would be crazy now. But imagine still, thinking that you and your army of 50,000 militiamen could take on the biggest military power on earth. That's insane. Why would you do that? Because you had to. Because you believed you had a right to be free. That some king that you've never met had no right to rule you without your consent because under God you believe that you are equal. So you fight and you win. And just like that, we were born. Sounds familiar, right? Kind of like Ukraine. In both stories, a small power stands up to a large and menacing military and fights for their freedom and their right to exist. The difference is that we declared our independence. We broke out from Britain. Ukraine was invaded. They were minding their own business, and Russia came in to erase them. But back to America, <laughs> we are born and we grow up and we get big and strong, right? And our power and our influence bring about an era of peace and stability for most of the world. We helped rebuild Europe after World War II and Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. We became the world's only superpower. We are six times wealthier than China, and the US military expenditure is roughly the size of the next seven largest military budgets around the world combined. But we don't see ourselves that way anymore. Or maybe we do. Maybe we think we're too big to fail, a phrase that hasn't exactly aged well. Historically, everything can fail, everything. History is the record of the rise and fall of empires. That's what power does. It's, it's like matter. It's never created nor destroyed, only changed. The power that America has enjoyed, we can lose it. Ask Rome. But I'm not even afraid that the United States and its allies will lose their power and influence. I'm more afraid that we'll let it go, that our self-interest will dominate our values, that we're afraid of bad press or so afraid to lose, that the next election is more important than the lives of the 44 million people in Ukraine. Things are changing we are limited by our fear and calculation and cynicism not just us the west we're in this new era of cynicism where the foreign policy approach has become all about minimizing risk narrowing our interests making smaller moves more incremental chipping away more and more we've become more calculating more risk averse and more divided and don't get me wrong okay I don't want some belligerent warmonger in charge of foreign policy, I don't. I believe that soft power does more than hard power. I believe in persuading, you you guys know this, you listen to me talk all the time. A diplomatic solution is preferable in every situation, but we don't always get to choose what we prefer. We've been lucky for the last few decades. Our position in the world has allowed us to live in peace, engage only where we choose to, or on the terms that we choose, but conflict doesn't only occur when you are ready, at least not anymore. We forget that the military is a form of diplomacy. You need a carrot and a stick. And I think that President Biden has done an incredible job at redefining the stick. Traditionally, sanctions suck. They take a long time to do nothing. President Biden and our European allies have figured out how to turn sanctions into economic war. And that shows some serious skill and creativity and a fundamental understanding of the world order. And I think it really is remarkable, truly remarkable. I mean, Switzerland gave up their neutrality, that's insane the sanctions work. The Russian ruble dropped 30% overnight. It is now worth less than a US penny. Yachts are being seized, assets are being frozen. And that's great. But I don't think Putin's going to stop. This is the thing that Twitter forgets is that we have tried a diplomatic solution with Putin before. George Bush looked in his eyes and said he saw a good man. That's not how aggressors talk to Russia. We told him to stay out of Georgia and he didn't stop. We told him to stay out of our elections and he didn't stop. We expelled his diplomats and he didn't stop. We sanctioned him and he didn't stop. We told him not to annex Crimea. We told him there'd be consequences and he did not stop. We gave him more sanctions and he did not stop. We told him to keep Russian hackers out of our government infrastructure and he didn't stop. We condemned him for amassing troops on the border of Ukraine and he didn't stop. Now we have engaged in economic war, crushing, crippling sanctions, and yet he is not going to stop. On Thursday, Putin spoke with the president of France and he told him that he would achieve his goals in Ukraine no matter what, and that any attempt to delay would just result in more demands on Russia's side, more concessions that they would demand of Ukraine. The president of France told an advisor after the call that based on that conversation, he was convinced that the worst is yet to come. We must prepare for that, all of us. I think that the sanctions package is great. The aid is great. The equipment is great. In the House and Senate, they're floating around an idea about a gas embargo. I think that that's great. But none of those things will help a dead man. No amount of money can bring back a civilian that is killed by a vacuum bomb. Some things are about more than money. Putin understands that. So does Ukraine. I'm not sure that we do. Because for all the solidarity tweets, all the stirring speeches at the UN, all the world leaders saying that they stand with Ukraine, the truth is that they don't. Zelensky and his people stand alone. They stand alone because we won't stand with them. The most powerful nations in the world, the world's only superpower, decided that it couldn't risk war with Russia. Because Russia is a nuclear power. We just can't risk it. And that's reasonable, it's rational, but those nuclear weapons are not gonna go away. He will have them when he takes Ukraine, he will have them if he expands into NATO, he will have them if he invades Moldova. The nuclear threat will not ever go away, so long as Russia has nuclear weapons. He will bring it up every time he is challenged because now he knows that it works, that we can be deterred by a threat, as if nuclear war wouldn't hurt him too. But maybe he doesn't care, truly, maybe he doesn't care. Do you know that Ukraine used to be the third largest nuclear power in the world? When the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine had thousands of nuclear weapons. But in 1994, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Russia, but in 1994, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Russia convinced Ukraine to surrender their nuclear weapons. And in return, we promised them security. It's called the Budapest Memorandum. Ukraine was told, at the time that the United States and Western powers take their political commitments really seriously, that we keep our word. And this is a document that's signed by heads of state. So the implication was that Ukraine would not be left alone to face a threat if one should come. They had this faith that the West would stand by them, at least the U.S. and Great Britain, that we would stand up for Ukraine. All they had to do was give up their nuclear weapons because we believed that a world with less nuclear weapons is one that we would fight to defend. We even went so far as to tell Ukraine that were Russia to violate the terms of the agreement, the United States would take a strong interest in respond. U.S. officials have said that they gave assurances of security, not a guarantee, which means that we wouldn't provide military support. However, when you translate that into Ukrainian and Russian, it translates to guarantee. Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons because they trusted us. They wanted to be closer to us. They didn't want to be isolated in Europe, seen as a threat. Do you honestly think that Russia would have invaded the third largest nuclear power in the world? They wouldn't. (laughs) They just wouldn't. Absolutely not. Ukraine made their country less safe on the word of the United States and Britain. Now they fight alone and they will die alone. We've provided all the equipment, but another step that we could take is establishing a no-fly zone. It's a really controversial idea. (laughs) Just Google it. There's like a thousand articles telling you why it's a bad idea. A no-fly zone means that we would defend Ukraine's airspace and shoot down anything that flies into it. This would provide some relief and it would show Ukraine that we're behind them, but it's still short of boots on the ground. Ukraine has been begging us to protect their skies. It's something that NATO's done before in countries like Libya, but so far, NATO has said that it will not do it. The US has said it will not do it because we are afraid of a direct conflict with Russia. Ukraine is afraid of a conflict too, but they don't have a choice. We like to frame the no-fly zone Like we don't have a choice either, like we couldn't possibly do it, but that isn't true. So much of this conversation is framed around Putin, what he will allow us to do. He won't allow a no-fly zone, so we won't commit to one, which is crazy because Ukraine is a sovereign nation. Putin doesn't get to make decisions about their airspace. It doesn't matter what he will allow. He's an invader. He has no right to decide on Ukrainian airspace. It doesn't matter if it upsets him, but we assume that he'll challenge the no-fly zone, that he will fly into the airspace and make us shoot him down, and maybe he will, but that would be his choice. He would choose to escalate, not us. By not establishing a no-fly zone, we are self-deterring because we know that he will challenge us. We're constantly talking about how we can't risk war with Russia, but by invading Ukraine, Putin has made it clear that he's willing to risk a war with us. Putin is challenging the international order. He's challenging democracy across the globe, a concept, by the way, that he thinks has outlived its purpose. He's challenging our values. He's challenging the resolve of the United States and our allies. And this is a challenge that we have to answer. I don't know if a no-fly zone is the way to go, but we have to do something. And again, sanctions are great, but they don't meet the scale of this threat. Oppressive regimes last a lot longer than you think. They are more resilient than you think. We need to be really clear right about this moment. It matters. And it matters more than whatever stupid shit we want to argue about at home. The United States of America is a superpower, at least for now. So when I hear our elected leaders tell us that there is nothing that we can do for Ukraine, I can barely stomach it. For a nation so obsessed with hashtag never forget, we're putting a whole lot of history in the memory hole. If you Google it, almost every foreign policy expert or elected leader has said that we can't risk a military confrontation with Russia, that we can't provide military support to Ukraine because it would escalate things. It's like they forgot who we are. We are the United States of America. We're the largest military power in the world. In 2020 alone, we spent $778 billion on our military. That is more than the next nine highest spenders in the world combined. And fine. Maybe we don't want to go in and help, but then what is that money for? What are we paying for, if not this? How can we justify spending $778 billion on our military if we refuse to use it? How come $778 billion can't buy the people of Ukraine a no-fly zone? Or a secure humanitarian corridor? That's basically what we call a no-fly zone when it's over civilian areas or it's incredibly strategic. We call ourselves the leader of the free world, but we're going to sit back while the people of Ukraine are butchered by a dictator that thinks... You don't have the right to exist. And we're going to do that because it's not in our interest to defend them. It's 44 million people. That's our interest. They're fighting with everything that they have. Old women are making Molotov cocktails and telling Russian soldiers to put sunflower seeds in their pocket so that they grow when they die. That's what Ukraine is doing. Everything that they can. And today, the Washington Post says that the U.S. is quietly setting up plans to support a government in exile when Russia takes Ukraine. Which, by the way, first off, if you're reporting it in the Washington Post, you're not planning very quietly. But that's neither here nor there. We're betting on an insurgency of Ukrainians to keep fighting Russia once Russia has occupied and taken Ukraine. And then our only hope, our best bet, is that Ukrainians make it too difficult to hold. That's our plan. Not only are we expecting them to fight and die alone, but once they have, we're expecting them to keep fighting to the very last Ukrainian because we will not intervene and that's that's plan a well no i guess that's not true we tried to deter him that didn't work so now that's plan a hope that the ukrainians once they have been murdered once putin has taken their country that they will just continue to be a pain in his ass until the cost is too high for him to stay there we're literally planning for ukraine to lose and then we're telling them that we stand with them are you kidding we gave them our word in budapest they're a democracy And Putin is trying to erase them in the most brutal way possible. Maybe I'm wrong to say that we should take military action to protect Ukraine. Maybe I'm naive or too idealistic, or I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe I need to accept that a country can be slaughtered by a bigger country for no reason other than the hatred of one man. And that the United States will let that happen, because we're realists now. And this is just the way of the world, but I can't accept that. I can't. That is not our version of the world. That is Putin's version of the world. I don't believe that countries are predator or prey. Those days are over. A lot of the emails that I've been getting from you guys have been asking what I think we should do, both on a military and individual level, so broad scope. And you've been telling me what you guys think that we should do. And honestly, some of the ideas are really good, but We are mostly civilians, right? So on an individual level, I think that we have to be strong. There are a lot of articles talking about the sunset of American power, that we are a nation in decline. And do you know what almost everyone says is their reason? Division at home. We can't project power globally when we are falling apart domestically. Our allies can't count on us when our leaders would rather get in fights on Twitter than pass a bill. How can we lecture anyone on democracy when half of our country doesn't believe in our elections? How can anybody think that America is a safe bet when we sign or pull out of alliances depending on who the president is? Doubt. Division. That is what weakens the power of the United States. It's not one bad president, whoever you think that president may be. It's the fact that we spend our time arguing about critical race theory and whether or not to name a school after George Washington instead of leading. President Biden called the world together for a summit on climate change. That could have been an outstanding opportunity for international commitments, collaboration, friendly pressure, to make progress on one of the biggest issues of our time. And the President of the United States showed up to that summit empty-handed because Congress couldn't get it together and pass a bill. He had no way to show that we were realistically committed to our climate goals, except his word. But we're getting to the place where the word of the United States, the word of our president, is only worth as much as Congress will pass which I think you and I both know is not a lot. How are we supposed to convince smaller countries with less resources to do more? When we have every resource, yet we show up without a firm commitment. Our leadership and our influence evaporates faster than you think. Think about the pandemic. How do we lead on that? When we're fighting about whether or not to wear a mask, how do you look up to America when part of our population's calling it the plandemic? When Putin murders civilians in Ukraine, the former president of the United States says that we are dumb and Putin is smart and people want to re-elect him. If the United States is truly in a period of decline, and I'm not sure that I agree with that, but if it is, the decline of American power is self-inflicted and that is on us, all of us. But if we did this, we also have the power to undo it. Maybe we can look back at this period of division and think, man, that was really crazy for a minute. Maybe this crisis will snap us back to the task at hand. Maybe it can be a reset. Maybe peace and power have made us lazy and idle. But now that there is work to be done, we can sober up and get serious. I don't know. Right now, we're not at war, but make no mistake. We are fighting. We are in a conflict of democracy versus autocracy. We are fighting for our relevance, our power, our value, our country, and our view of the world. And that fight begins at home. And I know that this is something that we can do. We can commit to doing better. In big ways and small, just start. Today, think about what matters to you most. Pick three things. Decide to argue about those three things and everything else we can fight about later. We can figure it out later. But right now, we do need to come together or we're gonna fall apart. I know I say this a lot, but contact your freaking representative and let them know that you're tired of division, that you're tired of Twitter grandstanding. Make it clear that they will not win your vote that way. Tell every single person you know to do the same. You might not think that it makes a big difference, but it does. Leaders lead, yes. But more often than not, elected leaders follow. They follow us. Show them what you want. Tell them what you want because extremists are loud, so we need to be loud too. Another thing that you can do is seriously, seriously commit to fighting disinformation. First, work on yourself. I recently got duped with some disinformation and had to recommit to the practices that I put in place to keep my media diet healthy. The American Values Coalition has a really helpful explainer with some easy to implement tips and it's not painful, it's like one page. I'll link to it in the show notes. The other piece of it is speaking out against something when it is false. And when I say that, I do not mean throat punching your uncle with a fistful of facts. That doesn't work. I don't care how good you think you are or how good your facts are. No one is ever like, hmm, well, now that I've read all 200 of your spreadsheets, Eric, I've really come around to your side of the argument. No. In fact, if your argument requires a spreadsheet and you are not in court, you're losing. We all hold power and influence within our social circles, no matter how small. So if somebody is saying a bunch of things that aren't true, if you're silent, you're agreeing. You're telling the people around you that that they're right, that that is true. And listen, I'm a firm believer in not swinging at every pitch. I'm not saying blow up family dinner by interrupting your mom every three seconds to argue about the factual accuracy of her story about the grocery store. But speak out on things that matter. You know what they are. The election was not stolen. That matters. Let people know that it's not true, that you're not on board with that. Because a lot of people are just afraid. One thing that I've learned from doing this podcast is that a lot of people feel the same way that you do, but they're just afraid to be the only one. So you got to be brave. You got to speak up and... Create some cover for somebody else in your social circle to voice their concerns also. It's also good to let people know how they can see for themselves. And I don't mean read this 30-page white paper, though I am guilty of that, or read this really long article in The Atlantic. But one thing that I do with some of my Trumpier Republican friends is I recommend that they listen to a podcast called The Dispatch. It is put on by Republicans, by conservatives, so it's non-threatening, but they're more moderate and fact-based than Tucker Carlson. So it's non-threatening, but it's better. Just introducing them to something like that in their media diet, that plants a seed. And also, really quickly, don't label everything that you disagree with as fake news or misinformation. I know I'm getting a little soapboxy here, but if your neighbor doesn't like Joe Biden and you do, that's not misinformation. She just doesn't agree with you. And you should talk to her too. Talk to a lot of people that disagree with you because maybe you're wrong. I find that sometimes I'm wrong. (laughs) Or maybe, maybe they are. But you won't find out if you're too fragile to talk to them. And almost more important than talking is listening to people that disagree with you. Not to win the argument, but just to find out where they're coming from and tell them where you're coming from. This is what I believe. This is why. This is where I found the information. (laughs) If you're trying to persuade them, it's not going to happen in one conversation. It's going to take a lot. You got to work at it. You got to be disciplined. But they're not going to have more than one conversation with you if you treat it like a title fight or a debate. Fight to listen, not to win. You'll be so much more influential that way. I also think we need to practice a little more gratitude and patriotism and encourage other people to do the same. We all have to believe in the thing that we're trying to protect. It's gotten cool to bash America on both sides of the aisle and it needs to stop, or at least, like, less, okay? <laughs> Seek out monuments. Think a vet. Tell people in your social circle how we benefit from being an American. I know it sounds cheesy. I don't know how you're going to bring it up casually, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. And look, listen, I'm not trying to put a pill of propaganda down your throat. I'm not saying you can't be critical of America. I spent this entire podcast being critical of America. Just try to be constructive. Not, just don't dunk on the other side or try to be a contrarian. Nobody likes a contrarian. I'm just telling you that right now. If you're that person that argues about, about everything just to argue, people hate it. I'm sorry that you had to hear it here, but people hate it. I think we also need to prepare for sacrifice and not allow sacrifice to become grievance. The price of gas is going to go up. It's going to hurt. That's the price we have to pay to fight this. This is how we fight back against what Putin is doing in Ukraine. It's a small thing, but it matters. Every time that you're at the pump and you're pissed, remember who you're mad at. It's not President Biden. He didn't raise your gas prices. Vladimir Putin raised your gas prices when he decided to invade Ukraine. And remember that. This is how we tell Putin to go fuck himself. This is how we make it hurt. We need to be willing to do that, to sacrifice and not fall apart at the first sign of hardship. People in Ukraine are being bombed. We can pay a little more at the gas pump. This is what I tell myself as I'm paying $7 a gallon this summer. In all seriousness, I think it's also important to keep watching the news. Don't look away from this. It's going to be hard to watch at times. It's hard to watch now. But we owe the people of Ukraine a witness. If we can't fight shoulder to shoulder with them, the least that we can do is that. We can hear their stories. We can witness their courage. We have to keep watching. It's the small part that we can each do to hold Putin accountable. And you can also donate. If you go to Moderate Party Podcast slash Ukraine, I've put together a list of charities that have received high marks on Charity Navigator. That's basically a like a charity review site um, to make sure that charities are efficient, transparent, and ethical. If you head on over there you can give so once again the link is moderate party podcast slash ukraine and if you don't like those give somewhere else it's just a list i put together that i think will be helpful for you guys i don't get anything from it it's just a resource for you i want to close this podcast out with a story that i've been thinking about a lot this last weekend i went to washington dc for the first time to attend the principal's first conference which i will be talking about in a later episode I love DC. I really did. I felt the size and scope of America. I remember um, the first time that I went to London, I kept thinking, this is where the world happens. And I had never felt that way in the United States. But I felt it in DC. It's so beautiful. And it's so clean. You can tell I live in California because I'm excited when cities are clean. Um, <laughs> the whole city is like a monument to our country. Um, I honestly don't know how you could live there and think that There's anything the United States can't do. But it was also a weird time to be there. Um, The day that I left for the conference was the first day of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So while I was there, we were watching the first few days of this invasion unfold on the morning news, and then I would leave and go talk about democracy or walk around these beautiful monuments that were talking about democracy or the soldiers that died to protect it, and I could feel the weight of it. You know, like the weight of this moment of who we are, of the story that we tell about ourselves, our values, all of it. I mean, it was everywhere. But the place where it really hit me the most was the World War II Memorial. bet some of you have seen it. Some of you haven't. If you haven't, it's this enormous courtyard. And on the edge on each side, there are these enormous stone pillars, 25 on each side. One for every state. One side of the courtyard represents the Atlantic Front, the other side represents the Pacific Front. And all along the walls on either side are these sculptures of the war effort. There's images of the Battle of the Bulge. There's a scene from a field hospital. Images of civilians preparing equipment we shipped to our allies as part of the Lend-Lease Act. Pictures of American families at home with the radio on when they heard about Pearl Harbor. There's scenes of civilians at home, planting victory gardens, holding scrap drives in order to raise money for the war effort. There are images of women serving in the military, factory workers building airplanes, soldiers in a transport aircraft, everyone, every single person contributing to the war effort. However they could. In those scenes, you see men, women, children, old, young, everybody. All the different ways that they're helping and fighting and it all mattered. Everybody sacrificed. Especially our soldiers. Their courage, it's everywhere. And there are these quotes all over the memorial that tell us the story of us. America came to liberate, not to conquer, to restore freedom and to end tyranny. There's another one that I wrote down just to tell you guys about it. We are determined that before the sun sets on this terrible struggle, our flag will be recognized throughout the world as a symbol of freedom on the one hand and of overwhelming force on the other. I found us, you know, (laughs) and I found Ukraine too. I found them in quotes like, they had no right to win, yet they did. And in doing so, they changed the course of a war because even against the greatest of odds, there's something in the human spirit, a magic blend of skill, faith, and valor that can lift men from certain defeat to incredible victory. That quote's about the Battle of Midway, but I mean, how do you read that and not see its relevance? And all of this leads you to the middle where there's this wall of gold stars, over 4,000 of them if you wanna be specific. And each one represents 100 Americans that died fighting in World War II, 400,000 Americans. And in big letters, there's this quote from General Douglas MacArthur that says, here we mark the price of freedom. It's one of the most moving things that I've ever seen, the scale of it. The scale of the sacrifice of the monument of the effort, the price of freedom. We paid the price of freedom as a country, as a world. We went to war against Hitler and those who stood beside him, and we paid the price. Because that's what our freedom requires, and our enemies witnessed the force of it, the fight that was in us, in all of us. Today, Zelensky and his people are showing us how they mark the price of freedom. Will we leave them to pay that price alone? And if they do, will we mark it? Or will we let them fade away? Or will we let them fade away? Is it even a price that we could still pay today? And if we could, would we want to? I don't know. I really don't. That's it. That's what's on my mind. If you want to tell me what's on yours or what you think about this episode, you can email me at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. I know it's heavy, but I'll be back later this week with a normal episode. Many jokes, higher energy, promise. I, well, actually, I shouldn't say promise, give or take World War III. My, that would really affect my mood. But until then, I'm Hillary Lombard, and this is Moderate Party.